Hi, this is Mike Conaway, former congressman from Texas, and thank you for joining our podcast today. We're uh, calling this podcast Cloakroom Conversations. And joining me today is Chris Giancarlo, who's the former chair of the CFTC. He's a current blockchain evangelist and, more importantly, my friend. So, Chris, thanks for joining us today, buddy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, before we get into the meat of the matter, your swearing in to the CFTC was in the ag hearing room. And That's you right. had a particularly interesting uh, individual swear you in. Tell our listeners who that guy was and how you came to, to get him to do that. Well, it was Justice Clarence Thomas. And uh, it was a proud moment for me to be in that room. Mike, you were there and you said a few words and, and he did the swearing in. You know, he's, he's, he's a remarkable person. He's had a remarkable story. But we have an interesting connection. So I'm, I'm from Bergen County, New Jersey, which is the more, most easternmost county in the state. And not far away from me is a large, probably 40-acre tract of, of land, and the center of it is an old convent building. And living in that convent building are a group of sisters who are now elderly in their 90s. But once upon a time, they taught elementary and secondary school in Savannah, Georgia. And who was a student at that school as a young boy but Clarence Thomas? And Ever since, Clarence Thomas, at least once a year, but often several times a year, would drive up from wherever he was, including Washington, to my home county to visit the convent, to visit those sisters that were his teachers when he was in school. And in his book, he talks about them very, very fondly as making all the difference in his life and encouraging him to take the right road. And there were a number of, of bad roads he could have gone down in the neighborhood he grew up in. And they kept him on the straight and narrow and in many ways made him who he is today. And so uh, I always feel that need whenever we get together, he talks about my county and where he likes to stop at a diner where, after he's visited the convent or where the bake shop, he likes to pick up buns and, and muffins and bring it to the sisters. He, he's a remarkable guy. And it's, it's, it's uh, someone who at least has spent a lot of time where I. The question in everybody's mind, of course, would be if we could, we could survey those sisters who had the most. <laughs> with a ruler. <laughs> I, well, I had a few raps with a ruler from some different sisters. They all must have, that must have been basic sister training, you know, is how to use a ruler on unruly eight-year-olds. Exactly, the back of your head. So uh, one final thing, you're a banjo player yep. and a guitar player, and I think you're, you're on somebody's recording from Europe how did, or England. How did that happen? Mike Marlin, who's an English recording artist, used to be basically a, a big wheel on Wall Street uh, before he completely left that and went into the music industry. He's a songwriter and he's a, a recognized recording star. And uh, he gave me a call, said, I'm working on a new tune. I want to do some banjo licks on it. Could you actually, he's, he's based in London. Could you record it online? I said, better than that. I'm going to be in London in two weeks. And so, in fact, I went in the studio with him in London and recorded those licks. And it's a fun, fun album. It's called uh, Forgive Me Yet on the Grand Reveal album. But I, Mike, hey, I'm still playing. And on April 30th up here in Tapan, New York, in the Hudson Valley, I'll be performing with a band at the uh, 76 House, which is a great old tavern that is the oldest continually operating tavern in America. George Washington actually hoisted a few brews in that tavern during the American uh, Revolution in Tapan, New York. And so if folks around Saturday, April 30th, come hear me playing with the Hodel Band which, as you know, in crypto means hold on for dear life. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, now 
did I see you play with a Second Amendment once or twice? I did in that same room you were talking about, in that same hearing room with your your uh, Ag Committee counterpart, Colin Peterson, and his band, the Second Amendments. Yeah, yeah. All right, fun, fun stuff. Well, switching gears to to the digital world, and, and uh, how did you come by the phrase crypto dad? What is, what's crypto dad mean? Well, it was actually another congressional hearing, not in your old hearing room, but actually in front of the Senate Banking Committee. In 2018, I was there in a, with a hearing with Jay Clayton from the SEC. And we had just, at our two different agencies, the CFTC and the SEC, had different had taken somewhat diametrically uh, different stands on the first emergence of crypto. We at the CFTC had just green-lighted Bitcoin futures. And at the SEC, they were taking a, a, a different approach, one of being very aggressive against what was called ICOs at the time, initial coin offerings. And so uh, we were being called to testify for our agency's various approaches to crypto. And I had submitted, as you do for these hearings, Mike, you well know, a 40-page opening statement or uh, statement. And we had gone through chapter and verse of why we felt comfortable greenlighting Bitcoin futures. And and there were a lot of skeptics and, and a lot of people that thought we were being foolish or reckless at the agency. So I was very careful to really document what we had done and why we had opened the door to a regulated market for crypto. And Mike, as I was preparing to give that testimony the night before, I read through those 40 pages and I thought, my God, this is dry as toast. Uh, <laughs> people are going to fall asleep. So I took a different attack the next morning when the, you know, when, when the lights went on and all those senators are sitting there. I said, senators, if you allow me, I'm not going to reiterate my testimony. It's there for your reading pleasure. But what I'd like to do is just talk to you, not as the head of a regulatory agency, but as a dad. And the moment I said that, I, you know, I, I, everybody looked up from what they were doing and looked at me. I said, you know, I'm the father of a group of later teenagers. And I said, I've tried to interest them in the stock market since they were young with no interest. But now all they want to talk about is crypto, as do their nieces and nephews and all the young people I know. And I said, I think we owe it to this generation to respond to this innovation with, with a positive and forward-looking approach and not dismiss it as just a silly fad for young people but actually give it the right intelligent regulatory response that it deserves. And Mike, I, when I went into that hearing, I think I had about a thousand Twitter followers. Within the next 42 hours, I had over 50,000 Twitter followers and they had given me all kinds of names, including yeah. this name Crypto Dad, because I said, uh -huh. I want to talk to you as a dad. And it's something that I, at first I didn't know what to do with it, but now I've come to embrace it. Yeah, yeah, not good, good, good stuff. Well, you open the door, to this ambiguity between the SEC and the CFTC relative to how do you regulate, who do you regulate, who does get to regulate, all those kind of good things. Obviously, there's some legislative proposals right now. I think the, the Senate, uh, Senator Loomis has a bill up that she's uh, peddling. I, I introduced a bill just before I left Congress in November of, of 2020. Give us your take on the uh, which agency do you think would be better, sir? The industry itself has asked for responsible, smart regulation. Which yeah entities do you think would be able to deliver the better regulatory scheme so that we don't stifle innovation and we don't harm the system and keep America relatively in the forefront on uh, on this issue? Right. Well, Mike, look, you know, as the former chairman of the Ag Committee that oversees the CFTC, that the CFTC's reason for being is really to oversee risk transfer markets. Markets where, where someone with a risk as exposure to the price of a certain commodity or a certain interest rate or benchmark 
goes and actually to transfer that that risk or to first to price that risk and then to transfer that risk if necessary so to someone else who's better able to to bear it which is different than the mission of the sec which is about capital formation crypto has volatility built in it has different price movements and so therefore risk hedging risk mitigation is an important part of this and that's really how the cftc first approached it back in 20, 2015 when it declared bitcoin bitcoin to be a commodity and then 2017 when we greenlighted bitcoin futures so the cftc has been looking at bitcoin in a very positive way in a very let's expand the regulatory envelope way since tw at least 2015 2017 no agency quite frankly anywhere in the world let alone in washington has as much knowledge and experience and analytical capability for the Bitcoin and Ethereum markets, as does the CFTC. So I think the CFTC is a natural. But you know, even more broadly than that, many in Washington have recognized that the, the SEC has not often been an agency comfortable with innovation. And I say that with great respect to the SEC, but if you look at the origins of the CFTC, it was created back in 1975 and 76 because of a a, a transfer, transformative financial innovation, which was financial futures, which actually enabled the United States to go off the dollar. We could never have gone off the gold. We could never have gone off the gold standard and onto a dollar standard if we couldn't hedge the risk of moving interest rates. And that was invented here in the United States. And it was such an important invention that actually Congress and the White House back then realized it needed a separate regulator who was charged with being open to innovation and hence the CFTC was created. That innovation wasn't given to the SEC, it was given to the CFTC and the CFTC was created to be an innovation friendly agency. And the, and the CFTC has remained an innovation friendly agency. I saw a statistic when I was at the agency, more new products, financial products were created and created in a regulatory environment under the CFTC between the year 2000 and 2017 than all other world regulators combined over 14,000 new product innovations on the CFTC. So CFTC is an agency that is constitutionally from its founding and its operation comfortable with innovation. And again, I say that no disrespect to other agencies, but it's written into the, to the legislative statutes. It's written into the DNA of the CFTC. And I think that's one of the reasons why the CFTC has led on crypto and has led virtually on every other financial innovation over the last four decades. Memory serves me right. You actually created an innovation lab at we CFTC. did lab CFTC with your support, frankly, and and your committee support, and it's it really went on to become the standard for what other agencies here in the United States have done in terms of creating an, a sort of a, a, a department of innovation, a place where innovators can go when they approach the agency and say, "Look, we're doing something outside the box here. How do we work with you? How do we fit this into a regulatory construct?" So without. <laughs> Keep your uh, crypto dad hat on because uh, our audience uh, has got uh, you know, varying levels of sophistication. But this regulatory scheme that folks are talking about would involve the spot market. And right. currently, the CFTC doesn't, doesn't directly uh, oversee much, very many spot markets. But what's your thought on, on the spot market as it relates to derivatives associated with crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, and, uh, and the CFTC? Well, let's first of all define for our audience what a spot market is as opposed to a, a, a derivative market. So a, a spot market is a market where you actually take physical delivery 
at the time of the purchase. So that, that's a very simple concept. You walk into a, to a deli, you buy a sandwich, you pay, you get your sandwich. You don't pay and then come back a day later. God knows that won't be a good sandwich. But you know, in, in the securities market, you go into the market, you buy a security. That's, that's common, right? You get title to it immediately, even if it takes a few days to settle. Securities and Exchange Commission has authority over both spot markets and derivative markets. Derivative markets are options, which may not come due for months or futures or, or that may not come due for months. The SEC has authority over both when it comes to securities. Interestingly, when it comes to the CFTC, it has authority over the derivative markets, futures, swaps, options, forwards, but it doesn't have, in most cases, with a few exceptions, authority over the spot market. Now, that may sound strange to people at first, but if you think about it, it makes sense. The CFTC has authority over gold futures, but it doesn't have authority over gold spot. If it did, it would have to regulate every jewelry shop in America. It has authority over oil and, and petroleum futures, but it doesn't have authority over spot oil. Otherwise, it would have to regulate every heating oil outfit in America, every gas station in America, right? It has authority over wheat futures, but it doesn't have authority over spot wheat. Otherwise, it would have to regulate every grain elevator across the Midwest, right? So it makes sense that the CFTC doesn't have spot authority in most cases, because in most cases, those markets are actually regulated at the state and local level, and it goes back to our constitutional system. But in a few cases, Congress has given the CFTC authority over spot markets, in, including in the area of foreign exchange, where there is an active futures market that's at the national level and it's traded on exchange. What does that mean for crypto? It means we actually have a regulatory gap. For crypto that is defined as securities, the SEC has authority over both the spot and the derivative markets. But for Crypto that's that's considered to be commodities, which are the two most important ones, which is Bitcoin and Ethereum, about 65% of the market is in those two asset classes. The CFTC authority is only over futures and not the underlying spot market. And so the question is, should that gap be closed? Should there be a federal regulator for spot markets in Bitcoin and Ethereum? And I'll tell you, I was reluctant to call for the CFTC to have this authority during my time in at the CFTC. And, and there's reasons for that actually don't have to do with crypto. It has to do with the CFTC's funding and its budget and its capability in terms of resource allocation. But I've come around to believe that this is so important that I think the CFTC should have that authority if Congress would grant it the resources to fill that gap. And I'll tell you why I think it's important. I think it's important for our national interests. Once we greenlighted the CFTC to have authority over the futures of Bitcoin and Ethereum at the CFTC, it means that the pricing of those products is now here in the United States. It's actually a strength. Bitcoin and Ethereum are priced in dollars. Pricing in dollars of key global commodities has been a strength for the dollar. The fact that oil is priced in dollars and not in yuan or in rubles or in pound sterling. The fact that most of the world's wheat, that most of the world's key commodities are priced in dollars and not in euros or in other currency is a strength for the United States. It's a strength for the dollar. 
And I think with Bitcoin especially becoming an increasingly important global commodity, I think having it priced in dollars under the oversight of the CFTC is actually in, in the nation's interest. And so I believe it's time for Congress to grant the CFTC authority over the spot markets in Bitcoin and Ethereum with its principles-based regulatory approach that serves so well our national interest in so many ways. I agree with you. The Senate hearing, which some of the folks testified, this issue of resources for the CFTC to be able to take on additional regulatory teams in a at last number I saw was that the crypto asset value was in the trillions, two-ish, three trillion. That's a meaningful number. There was support for that and increased assets, increased resources. I know when you were there, we had a freeze on and all kinds of nasty stuff that you had to manage. You know, most Republicans are reluctant to increase spending, but you think this would be money well spent to uh, to increase the resources to allow that to happen? Yes, I do. Look, I, I think one always needs to be wary of federal agencies that come cap in hand, requiring all kinds of hundreds of millions of dollars additional funding. And often it goes to hiring a lot of lawyers and not necessarily to make them more competent. I think though the CFTC is actually a pretty disciplined, highly competent agency. And I think if if the, the budget were done properly to give Congress the right confidence and the oversight was there, I think the CFTC can do a very good job in this. And, and compared to perhaps other regulators in Washington that may have more of a consumer protection mandate, I think the CFTC gets the balance right between you know, protecting market participants, but also thinking about the overall health of the market and the national interest. Again, the dollar is under pressure in some ways. And I think having the dollar remain the base pricing instrument for, for key world commodities, which I consider Bitcoin to be an increasingly important global commodity. I think that's in the national interest. We have certainly benefited from the intelligence of creating the CFTC and putting in charge of most of the world's key commodities, which are priced in US markets, in dollars, under CFTC oversight. And I think that's been a net positive for Americans. Swiss gears, talk to you a little bit about your uh, digital dollar project. What is that? So um, when I left the CFTC at the end of my term in 2019, it had been a, a something that had been percolating in my mind. I, I had, during my t- time, you know, the funny thing about the CFTC is it's a very international agency, perhaps even more than the SEC. And the reason for that is because most of the world's key commodities, you know, soybean, iron ore, things that, that feed the world, that power the world, that build the world are priced in the United States. And so it's under CFTC oversight. So our role is very international. And I'd spent a lot of time in the Pacific Rim and in, in Asia became very aware that some of our economic rivals and competitors and sometimes adversaries are looking to mimic our market and in a sense move the pricing and move the financial system into a separate thing. And China is leading in that effort. China really embraced the notion of digital currency, but in a different way, as opposed to private digital currency like like stable coins or crypto, they envisioned a digital yuan, basically a, a cryptocurrency, but that is state issued. And they have moved very far with that. And so a light bulb went off for me sometime in the summer of 2019 that the United States was was just not appreciating what China was doing. And so I did an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal along with my colleague, Daniel Gorfine, in October of 2019. And we basically said China's launch of a digital yuan should be a Sputnik moment for the United States that should galvanize us. 
And since that time, I've launched something called the Digital Dollar Project two years ago to raise awareness in the, in the federal government about the importance of not leaving, as we did with 5G, we left the development of that technology to our economic competitors. And, and the United States is not a competitor in 5G technology. I was worried we were about to do the same thing with digital, sovereign digital money, central bank digital currency. And so we launched the Digital Dollar Project to raise awareness. Well, in some ways, we're sort of like the dog that caught the school bus, because now everybody is saying, you know, you're right, the United States needs to lead in this. And just last week, March 9th, there was an executive order from the White House called Ensuring Responsible Development of Digital Assets that called US leadership in central bank digital currency urgent. Well, uh, I'm delighted by that, but we've been saying that for two years. I believe it's urgent, not because I'm certain the United States should issue a central bank digital currency, but because digital currency technology is going to be an export product for China. China is going to use, combine its domestic use of central bank digital currency, and then export the core technology through their Belt and Road Initiative to every state in the world that wants to move off dollar dominance, that wants to move outside of the Western, the US-dominated Western banking system. That, you know, I'm very afraid that, not that sanctions will fail against Russia right now, but they'll work with so much uh, devastation for the Russian economy that states around the world that don't want to see that happen to them if they fall afoul of Western norms, will actually look to move to Chinese-built central bank digital currency technology to move outside the system. And you can see Venezuela, Ecuador, Cuba, and even less benign states looking to adopt that technology. And with, with it will come a lot of Chinese values, like state surveillance of economic activity, like censorship of economic activity. You know, if you're using the digital yuan and you criticize the Chinese government, you'll find that your ability to use that you want to get a rail ticket outside of your village will be turned off, or your ability to get the apartment you want will just be disabled from the currency itself. It's gonna give the Chinese government enormous surveillance and, and censorship capability, and they're gonna export that, and that's gonna be adopted around the world. The reason why I believe we need to dominate in digital currency technology is because we need to make sure that Western values of censorship resistance of government respect for privacy and financial liberty are encoded in a future digital dollar, digital uh, central bank digital currency. So we've evolved at the Digital Dollar Project from first trying to raise awareness to the government to now trying to make it clear that if we don't adopt traditional civil rights in digital money, whether that be, by the way, a sovereign stable coins or cryptocurrency operated outside of government, but influenced by government in the same way Facebook is influenced by government today or TikTok is told what to say by presidential administrations. We need to make sure that the purveyors of money, whether they be private sector or public sector, whether they be non-sovereign or sovereign, reflect Western values of financial liberty. Mike, you and I have talked a lot about core values of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. Those freedoms are meaningless if you don't have economic liberty. How, how do you support a religious institution but financially? How do you support speech but financially? And so we need to make sure that our values, and that's where we're now at the Digital Dollar Project, to bring the private sector's expectation of what should be the values of digital money to bear as the Federal Reserve and the White House start taking up the subject. And I, I one last point, the Reserve put out a paper on central bank digital currency back in February 
And it used an interesting adjective in front of the word privacy. It referred to consumer privacy. Well, I don't think consumer privacy goes far enough with government's control of money, right? It's not just where we shop that matters. It's what controversial causes that we support that matters that must be kept private. And so it, we've got work to do to make sure that here in the United States, in Europe, in the West, if we're going to if we're going to develop central bank digital currencies, or if private sector actors are going to develop stable coins and other payment mechanisms, that privacy is privacy. It's not just a consumer privacy; it's all economic privacy, provided it's legal, of course. But legal activities must be private, and that's going to be a value that's going to be very different than what China's doing. We need to make sure that the future of digital money. Is one where commonly assumed social and civil rights are, are are built and coded into it as a design choice. George Orwell wrote the book 1984, and China started their social score where they yep. were scoring folks. They then tie their financial system or the money to that social score is a frightening,、uh, certainly frightening possibility. And you can certainly understand that the Chinese Communist Party of China, not the Chinese, the Communist Party of Chinese China. Would want that control and, and intend to get that control to make that happen. Folks who've been listening, you now understand why I try to hang out with Chris a lot. He's a really, really smart guy. I appreciate him coming on the podcast today. He's a man of many talents. Has earned the、uh, digital、uh, crypto dad concept or, or moniker that he has been tagged with. Chris, any final thoughts you want to have before we、uh, wrap this up? You know, Mike, I just wrote a book called "Crypto Dad: The Fight for the Future of Money." There's a copy on its way to your bookshelf, and I commend your readers to it if they're interested in some of these ideas. Because I am concerned about. The, by the way, first of all, you know, technology is not something that is stoppable, right? It, it's it. This is coming. You know, money is. It it it's naive to think that the same internet that totally re- revolutionized retail shopping. That revolutionized photography and communications and social networking is not going to do the same thing to money and banking and and finance and the dollar itself. It's going to, but it's for us as a free society to stand up now and say, what are the values we need to make sure is in that digital future? Right? Will it be kind of what happened to social to information sharing? We found that it was great to be able to talk to people peer to peer. But we're now we're finding that these big tech companies are also conditioning what's said and what's not said online. Well, we can't have that happen to our ability to exercise our financial freedom in, in the future. We need to make sure that it is a future of of greater inclusion, greater access, greater ability to interact directly with people. But that there's not intermediaries, whether they be big tech or big government. That are trying to condition some of those choices, and so my book, Crypto Dad: Fight for Future Money, it's available on Amazon, on BarnesandNoble.com. Take a look at it; it talks about a lot of these issues. Well, Chris, again, thank you very, very much for being on the、uh, on the call today, and I、uh, look forward to a future、uh, iteration of this conversation、uh, a little further down the road. Again, Chris Giancarlo, former chairman of the CFTC, digital. We didn't even talk about blockchain much. Current blockchain evangelist and a really smart guy, and a father of three really smart kids. So. Chris, thanks for being with me today. See you again soon, Mike.